morning, Ernie. Good morning, Robbie. Oh, how are you doing? Oh, I feel rested and uh, at rest. Um, there's lots of things I would like to get to and uh, still uh, significant uncertainty of the uh, legal issues with my extended family will turn out okay. um, but but uh, we're enjoying restored relationships with an estranged daughter and uh, mm -hmm. working with her on a project and uh, harmonious family you know household experience so it's a uh, it's a good time for us right is this officially now a formally estranged daughter formerly yes Really. Yes. Yeah. That, that is okay. <laughs> yeah, it is weird how some things go much better while other things go. Uh, so it seems like the narrative of your last few months is the things that you expected to go well went really badly, and things that you weren't expecting to happen that were good did happen. Uh, just, say that again. The things that I oh that weren't I was expecting to go well. Uh, went sideways, and uh, things that were going badly have improved. Yeah. Is that, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I hadn't. Uh, I don't experience it as a sweeping generalization because the, uh, the the family, the extended family, um, is going the anyway. They're. Uh, Anyway, I don't experience it as a generalization. Just yes, some okay. certain things are going well, and others are not. Okay. Yeah, it's just the, uh, the to me the contrast was striking, right? There was one specific like the the legal thing that you thought was going to go smoothly, uh, you know, basically yeah. fell apart, and right. then your situation with your daughter, which seemed um, at an impasse, suddenly became miraculously. Yeah. Brutal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it, it um, I, I, yeah, I guess I can't help but wonder if there's some sort of conservation law in practice. So I can't figure out what that is. Right. Um, and certainly, it's not like it always has to be that way. Sometimes lots of things go wrong at once, and sometimes lots of things go better at once. But um, it's a, you know, uh, this week and today feels like. Um, um, a momentous week, I guess, because there's lots of things that have been kind of converging, and I'm not sure whether any of them are actually going to happen or whether they're all going to fly apart or if it's going to be a split decision. So uh, the uh, sort of immediate urgent thing, or, or the one thing with a deadline, is this DBJ event we had planned for Saturday the 19th. Mm -hmm. And so we've been talking about this for a few weeks. And I checked today, and at this point, literally the only person who has signed up is Emiliana. Oh, and okay. I noticed that even you haven't signed up yet, and I was I was curious if you had any thoughts about whether you will be attending or inviting anyone, or um, you know, I'm kind of wrestling yeah. with whether is it worth to still do this? Is this a sign from the Lord that we should take a step back? And that was one thing I wanted to talk with you in the context of everything else that's going on. Sure, or is it a call to um, step forward in faith uh, without the reassurance of having pre-registrations? Um, well, I, uh, I I think about it a good bit. I have uh, 
there are many things on my plate that I would like to do that I am not getting time for, uh, partly because our priority is the time we're investing with our daughter on a significant project, um, building some furniture with her for the motorhome that she's refurbishing. Yep. Um, yeah. So, so um, I'm making myself available first to family whenever she's available around. She was rear-ended um, quite quite badly. They totaled the car shortly before she, uh, between when we started to reconcile and when she actually came here to work with us on the motorhome. So she's been out a lot for chiropractor and other appointments and just yeah. spending time in bed dealing with pain. So it hasn't been as consuming as it, and it hasn't finished when we had expected it to finish. <laughs> anyway, all that aside, um, I'm I'm feeling positive about the time, and so far, nothing has uh, indicated that I'm not going to be available. So I'm expecting to be available, and I've been turning over in my mind. I've I've wanted to get a prayer update out broadly, and I've been hoping to in the next few days, and uh, but I'm not certain of doing so. But if I do, I wanted to invite people to uh, that event, um, and. Um, I was also, I'm in a group with people locally who have a deeper passion for evangelism and for becoming fruitful in evangelism than I generally experience in church life. And I was thinking of inviting them because part of my conversation with them has been about what do we offer people after they make a decision for Jesus? Is it the impersonal worship experience um, without personal relationship that many experience in the church, or uh, can I introduce them to this kind of interactive listening to Jesus together that uh, leads into richer obedience and fellowship? So I was just this morning woke up thinking that uh, I'd like to invite several from this group to come, and they're mostly retired with uh, flexibility in their schedule, so uh, I think uh, some of them probably would still have the time free. I did see that uh, our friends down in California who had expressed interest previously uh, both have conflicts that morning. Okay, good. That's encouraging. Uh, I think two things that really struck me. Uh, one was just knowing that you're still feeling positive inclined. The Lord seems to be bringing people to your mind. Uh, the second thing that you know the, the two questions i was asking the lord was like should i be doing this uh on saturday and should we be sticking with this topic and this theme and one is that the one person i've talked to where the, this theme is so directly relevant to where she is right now is emiliana so the <laughs> fact that she signed up and said okay this is what we promised this is what she signed up for this is the right thing to do for her so we should go ahead and uh -huh. do this right. um but the second thing that struck me uh was oddly enough the fact that you mentioned that your daughter had this you know fairly significant accident in the middle of the literally in the middle of this reconciliation process right and one of the things about this passage that i do not understand at all but i'm very curious to hear what jesus has to say is this idea of the cup of suffering right mm -hmm. is that there are things we want from god um or authority we want with god and it somehow seems tied up uh, in a very unclear way, with a ability to drink from the cup of suffering, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, going with this concept of, 
you know, conservation is that there is uh, a price to be paid of some kind in order for these breakthroughs. And, uh, you know, the flip side of this is something that uh, Gordon Dalby, one of my mentors, told me. Uh, he, you know, wrote a book that kind of invented or prefigured the modern Christian men's movement. But mm-hmm. he, like, had no publicity, no success, no revenue windfalls out of any of this. And he was uh-huh. saying to God about, like, God, I've got all these great truths. Why don't you allow me to, like, get this out to people where it can help them and I can make a living and all this? And God said, uh, because you wouldn't survive it, is that the spiritual mm-hmm. forces arrayed against you are so severe that if you had a uh-huh. high profile, you would just be destroyed. And uh-huh. so God was protecting him by giving him obscurity which is a theme that I've uh, talked about with Emiliana as well. And it does make me think about the connection to the couple suffering, is that there is a, um, a depth of, like, in some sense, that in order for a large spiritual victory, there has to be a large spiritual transaction of some kind. And at one level, Christ has already paid it all. On the other hand, there's also a cup that we ourselves must drink from. And it is God's mercy to, uh, you know, I I used to envy the people who seem to have lots of success without having to pay a heavy price. Or even envy those who seem like they were, quote unquote, getting away with immaturity and selfishness but still had these rich flourishing uh, businesses or ministries or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I think I have come to uh, a place where I, I pity those people rather than envy them. Mm-hmm. Is that it is better to have a deep, intimate connection to God and experience him as a loving and disciplining father. Uh, that better God keeps me on a short leash so that I can win the long game, even if it means uh-huh. foregoing all these short-term gratifications and satisfactions. Right. So, anyway, so it feels like we're on the right track for this Saturday, so we will move forward with that, and I will start promoting it more aggressively and see if anyone bites. Uh, it's really astonishing like, how many of the people that, I, that I've talked to said, oh, my, that's amazing, but we are so busy on the 19th. So, uh, but, you know, who knows? God's keeping those spots open for a smaller group or maybe just the three of us, whatever. It's a lot of yeah. the thing that God wants me to do. It doesn't really matter how successful it is. Yeah. Which is the... Uh, yeah. I've been thinking about it in the background, but I haven't... Um, I, I've, I've forgotten even now what the passages are. I've been trying to recall what it's the... It's Shalomi's honor. It was the... Uh, oh, that's right. Where right. James and John come Shalomi. to Jesus and say or Solomon comes to and the mother of James and John says, you know, hey, can my sons be in charge of your right, right and left hand? And right. Jesus says no. And then we go and follow Salome through uh, the cross and the empty tomb. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, uh, and somehow you were relating that to the concept of uh, people who are close to each other, who love each other, who are trying to fix each other, as the way I remember, uh, or I, I, I have this record, I have this memory false or true, that this is a part of what you were processing that prompted you to think about uh, those passages. 
Am I recalling yes. that correctly? Yeah, you, you are correct. Yeah, this was a conversation I had with my father uh, as part of this podcast I'm doing with him. Um, okay. But the idea was that, um, very much so, that the um, the thing is that it's, it is actually a very difficult thing to, uh, for lack of a better word, to be a father. Uh-huh. Uh, in some ways, you know, being the, the and just using the traditional gender cultural roles, whether or not that's biblical to other discussion, but the, you know, the mother is the source of unconditional love. And then it involves enormous sacrifice, but in some ways, relatively few decisions, uh-huh. right? It, okay. The answer is always to be the sacrificial one. But to be the father figure is to say, I will... Um, be the authority and say, this is wrong, this is right, this is good enough, this is not good enough, this is worthy of punishment, this can be ignored, this will be celebrated. Those are much more, um, well, those, uh, the, the simple version of that actually is probably not that hard, which is purely internalizing cultural norms, is that you don't take any agency over it and you just say, well, that's what society expects, that's what the culture expects, that's what Trisha says. And we just become subordinate agents, uh, sort of foremen, just carrying out what everyone else says we need to do and just sort of transmitting uh, stress and expectations. But right. uh, I think everyone, to some or a greater or lesser extent, every man has to deal with the, um, you know, at least to the extent they fulfill this role. And I guess women, especially single moms, often still lose for a choice to say, where is the uh where do you draw the line you know when you have two squabbling siblings do you leave them alone do you intervene do you punish one and not the other you punish both and and all these issues to me are tied up in um the fact that it's it's almost playing god in a sense to make these kinds of decisions and we are rarely conscious of it at that level but it's definitely a sense of we are asserting knowledge of good and evil. And, and the thing that I, the paradox I am wrestling with personally is that it is enormously valuable to have someone willing to do that in my life. Um, but it is also enormously fraught because they aren't perfect. And so, and similarly, like, I desperately feel the need to do this in my children's lives because, you know, they're 10 and 13, uh, not as old as yours, uh, uh, except perhaps for, you know, Wesley, who's in a similar state uh, right. s- statement. And, like, it's really important that I do this and not shirk this responsibility, but I'm going to do it wrong. And this is the... Um, and then professionally, even going through the ministry and all this is like, like I feel like there is better and worse ways to do uh, discipleship, right? The whole point of DBJ is that I'm trying to shift yep. the, the yep. church from a discipled by human authority to discipled by scripture, discipled by Jesus. But there are still decisions I have to make and standards and lines that I draw and things I do and don't do. And I, and in fact, that's some pushback I get from my own family is, uh, you know, it's like, you know, hey, where's the standards? Where's the bright lines? Uh, you know, mm-hmm. how is this really scriptural? How is this under control? 
and then people you know diverge from that and it's like i don't know um uh i and you know i wonder if that's also reason for this pause we've had for the last you know seven to ten weeks is you know is that maybe that's the thing that um before we scale this before we can roll this out to a larger population and get more people doing it you know maybe i need to come to a deeper revelation or a deeper place of peace or something around these issues and then uh as a purely practical matter um you know the people i think would benefit most from this are people who are in this dmm community space precisely the ones who care deeply about god who care deeply about discipleship who are frustrated and see many of the issues and weaknesses with the existing model um those are in some ways the hardest people a for me to have empathy and compassion for and to you know care about rather than judge yeah, and yeah. uh it's probably also true that it is they may have uh the the um they probably need the most grace to be able to um see how this can um help them experience more of god if that makes sense you, you know the the cuz i don't even want to say that like this is the thing they need that mm -hmm. they don't have because that's like getting back into the same <laughs> <laughs> yep. uh, dynamic yep. that I'm trying to work away from. On the other hand, I want to say something. Like, I right. feel like there's something, and what I do think and feel and believe is a mixture of, you know, I think, uh, you know, and you have this wonderful phrase about being more attached to what God wants and yet detached from what we want. Yeah. Right? Right? And yet, this yeah. is the precisely the place where. Uh, it's funny, I've been having a discussion with, I sent you that link, yeah, it was because of this link I sent from this uh, sort of new agey type of guy um, right. who's talking about detachment and yep. Deepak Chopra and, and all this. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. you know, the, the thing about Eastern traditions, which I really like, is they do tend to uh, have good practices for not getting caught up in the things of the world. This idea of detachment right. and you know, just breathing, right. meditation, retreat, whatever. On the other hand, they have a very weak concept of healthy attachment. I mean, most people will acknowledge that there is such a thing, but there isn't uh -oh. nearly the level of practice and teaching and modeling of what healthy attachment is. You know, right. in Christianity, we have the incarnation very explicitly at the center of the narrative, uh, but it's it's very much a an afterthought in like Buddhist thought uh, to the mm -hmm. extent I understand it. And yeah. this issue of um, you know to incarnate in the situation is to be an actor, is to be an agent, is to make choices, mm -hmm. is to make decisions about what is good and not, and what where you intervene and where you don't. Yep. And you know, it has to be done. You can't just throw things out there passively and just hope that 
Uh, so this is the thing. On the one, you can't just throw things out there passively and just say, well, I wash my hands of the consequences because that is irresponsible. It's irresponsible parenting, um, right. if nothing else. Uh, but on the other hand, it's not healthy to feel um, um, fully responsible for the consequences and outcomes in a way that leads to micromanagement and manipulation. Mm -hmm. and, and maybe the, sorry, thanks for the, maybe this, what does it really mean to be in communion with God? Mm. You know, that the thing that we want is, you know, what we want is God himself and we want God's uh, purposes. Uh -huh. With and and we're okay being a little bit unclear about what those are. Yeah. And the um, acid test is precisely the um, ability to walk with Him in the midst of that uncertainty. And. Um, it's like, I guess, like a, um, a sheepdog with a shepherd. Right. Whereas the sheepdog is not on a leash. They have enormous freedom of movement. They will often be out of sight of the shepherd doing the shepherd's work because they're focused on the sheep. Right. But then they, but they're always sort of aware of and attentive to, and therefore uh, ready to hear the whistle um, of when the shepherd, you know, calls them back. Uh, you know, an even better one is perhaps the uh, uh, foxhounds, the beagles, who when they're chasing the fox, they're doing the master's work, but their job is not to kill the fox. Right. Their job is to uh, tree the fox or whatever, and then when the master comes, get out of the way mm -hmm. so that the master can, you know, release the fox or kill the fox or whatever, depending on the... Uh, yeah. Relevant uh, ecological implications of all that, and you know maybe that's the the thing is to uh, I'm actually enjoying the the foxhound beagle metaphor because like uh, uh, the, the hounds love the hunt, they love mm -hmm. the chase, but and you know they they are desperate to do their job well, right? That is their joy <laughs> and their glory to yep. just sniff it out and, and unveil it. But then, like, the actual outcome is totally out of their hands. Uh -huh. like, they really have no say in whether the fox lives or dies. Right. That, that is the thing that is totally up to the master. Yeah. And so I'm not sure how all this fits together, but this at least captures the emotional angst that I am bringing to the table. Uh-huh. One... Uh... One thing that jumps out as I'm listening is, for me personally is that a, a large barrier to my communion or abiding in Jesus is my commitment to my sense of urgency, which doesn't, mm. as far as I can see, relate to God's timing and orchestration of many, many factors that I'm totally unaware of. Um, and so when I'm living within my own awareness, 
rather than the awareness that God is bigger and aware of much more, then I evaluate and determine we should try and press to get this done by this time for this reason to keep momentum going or whatever else. And uh, part of my conscious effort to be at rest now is to try to seek contentment and to try and practice contentment in pursuing the priorities that are available as I sense the Holy Spirit's prompting and not to be stressed about the things that I'm not getting to uh, that I feel are, you know, highly significant and important but that uh, are taking a back seat right now to the family both sides with the daughter where things are going well and with the court case where they're not, um, both of which seem to be freeing up within a week or two. And uh, I'm looking forward to making progress on a variety of things that have, you know, I squeeze in a little bit of time here and there anyway that overall tension yeah. between my sense of timing and what may be the Lord's timing that I'm not clear on is, uh, it, but that's what takes me away from communion is the focus on trying to get things done where I'm not sure about his timing, but I'm certain about my um, sense of timing. <laughs> yeah. You know, the thing that, uh, thank you for sharing that. And I, and I can resonate with that quite a bit. I think one of the, the disciplines, that I have learned um, is this idea of when I feel a sense of urgency, my natural tendency is to focus on the external thing that I have the urgency about. Mm -hmm. And then learning to step back and say, actually the feeling of urgency is itself a thing. And, you know, rather than just being a slave to that sense of urgency, Right. Um, to be the master of it and say, where is this sense of urgency coming from? And mm -hmm. I can say, well, you know, in the startup culture, you know, the most important thing is to build momentum, right? Or in the ministry culture, the most important thing is to get results. Right. And the answer is, okay, well, that's a thing. You know, that's a real thing. That's a useful piece of information. But, you know, the um, one of the things I've talked about in business is that it's great if you can have a client instead of a boss because the uh -huh. client sometimes it's great to have a client instead of a boss because with a client you don't have to trust them to be right you can mm -hmm. deal with them on your terms and you can renegotiate whereas the boss okay. you have to obey but the flip side is that it's like right now with my boss we're going through a pretty stressful time in our company as we are kind of heading towards a major funding event has created an enormous amount of pressure on my boss. And he was getting really stressed out a couple of weeks ago to the point where he actually sort of loudly snapped at me during a meeting, which is very unusual. It happened like once before in my entire career here. And he apologized for it later. We talked about why he was so stressful. And we asked him to say, okay, uh, the reason he was stressed is that he was having a lot of expectations placed on him. And he wasn't sure how uh, uh, you know, there, there was some data that wasn't looking good. And he was very stressed about it, and he wasn't clear to how he was going to get this resolved, because this is one of these things that like that has to get fixed in order to get to the next level of the company. And he felt like he wasn't being given good data, and you know, it's kind of like mm -hmm. someone's all, like someone's lying to you or not, or not showing you the truth. It's an incredibly uncomfortable thing. Like, what, it's bad enough if 
you have really difficult situations that you're trying to figure out mm-hmm. how to solve. But if you can't even trust the data you're given, that just feels like there's some problems. And we finally got to a point where we were able to say, okay, uh, this is the causes of it. And uh, there's a quote in the consulting world about, uh, you know, the standard interview question, how do you meet an elephant? And the correct mm-hmm. answer is one bite at a time. Right. And, the, and we, we were able to say, okay, this is the problem. This is the process that we go through. This is who goes through this. Then, you know, we just methodically work our way through the elephant and this will get done. And it's not that big of a deal. We finally had a um, plausible strategy to put our faith in to be able to think. And immediately, the, the funny thing that happened is that, um, uh, like, he is like so peaceful now. And so there's still all this chaos going on, and he's still working like a dog, I think, to get all this done. But he has totally eliminated all the pressure on me. He has, yeah. out of his grace and capacity, you know, well, once I was able to give him that vision of how to get through this, then he's mm-hmm. able to sort of take all the stress and pressure off of me. And it's like, okay, I got a lot of things going on, and they're important. Um, but there's nothing that is sort of existentially urgent anymore. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, each day there's a crisis, and we will deal with it, and we'll get through it. And I don't need to be stressed. I don't need to worry about the big picture. Like, there are critical things that have to happen. And right. if they don't happen, you know, it's an existential challenge for the company, but they're not my problem. Like, my right. boss has got my back, and he is in a place, and this is actually, you know, an interesting theological perspective, too. There are things I need to do to accomplish my boss's will. But because I trust my boss, and I trust that my boss knows me and cares about me, I know that he will make it clear to me what is urgent, when it is urgent. Right. And until then, I literally don't have to worry about it. Yeah. And the and in fact I realized, you know, the the really my only job for the next three months when the company is crisis is to really just um keep my boss sane. Like to be aware of what he's feeling and stressed about. And if there's something that he needs me to do or something I can do for him, that mm-hmm. I do it. And yeah. I do that and it it is um a, it, it is a, uh, I guess, almost a childlike uh, uh, relationship in that I'm okay not knowing what's going on. Like, it's good that I know mm-hmm. that there's something important afoot uh, that, right. that matters, but I don't need to bear the weight of that. Um, uh-huh. And, you know, sort of as I grow in my capacity, uh, you know, he may share more of his burdens with me and he has over time shared more of the things that stress him and that's fine but because right. he's the parent he can kind of decide which ones he shares with me which ones he doesn't and mm-hmm. um as long as it doesn't you know affect me then that's fine um and so the um you know and this is interesting because you've been a freelancer for what 10 years now longer yeah, uh, 15, 20, two, 2005 or four is when we formally left the yeah. U.S. Center for Organizations. Yeah. And so um, part of being a freelancer is, like I say, you are your own boss. Uh-huh. Uh, and that is a stressful position to be in. Because if you mm-hmm. don't have this fire in your belly to get stuff done, or, you know, let's call it the, the imp of performance 
whispering in your ear like you need to be on top of things, then right. things can fall apart. Yep. Uh, and so, like, this is a necessary thing to have gotten you this far is to have that input performance whispering in your ear. Yeah. But this, I think, perhaps is precisely the thing that needs to be redeemed. Mm -hmm. Is that you realize, you know, hey, you are a really useful voice to have around, but you are not the boss of me. Right. You know, you're just a sort of almost mechanical warning system that sets off alerts now and then. Yeah. And, you know, going, and, you know, I, this is interesting. I didn't even think about this in the context of passage. Um, but in some sense, you know, uh, you know, it's easy to kind of give them some grief for like trying to angle for positions in this. But, you know, they just assumed that Jesus would be around forever. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think they were jockeying, jockeying to be successors to Jesus and actually be in charge. They just wanted to be his lieutenant. Mm -hmm. right? um, and uh, the, uh, they clearly knew that Jesus was in charge and that they were just going to kind of be placeholders mm -hmm. uh, to fill in the gap. And, um, you know, even uh, uh, in that sense, you know, their ambition was probably better than a lot of ours. <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, they had a much clearer sense of subordination uh, in what they were asking for uh, when they were trying to be in charge of things. Um, and yet even there, it's, you know, still a, a question of whether or not Jesus approved or disapproved of their asking for this. But anyway, yeah. um, my, well, let me just say one other thought about the the sense of urgency I feel that may not be related to what God is up to uh, comes largely for me from seeing opportunities. And I've just cultivated this ability to see opportunities everywhere and to try and yeah. add value everywhere. And, you know, I've long heard that I need to learn to say no. Um, but the, it's, it's, uh, it's not just learning to say no. For me, it has to be learning to uh, recognize that the sense of urgency I feel about an opportunity uh, needs to come to be informed by Jesus's love and wisdom and power um, in ways that I have not stopped in the past to try and sort out i've just tried to squeeze in everything i can until things start falling apart and continue to, and just lived on that edge of things falling apart because i'm trying to keep too many things in the air um so it's helpful for me to just articulate that in a in that uh, coherent bubble anyway yeah no i think i i can resonate with that because when i was an entrepreneur you know, you are desperate. You, you, the survival trait of an entrepreneur is uh, in the early stages is where you are um, hungry for opportunities. Uh -huh. literally, you're literally starving for opportunities. Right. Uh, okay. Because, you know, and it, it makes me think of my Cocker Spaniel, who I'm walking now, who is massively food motivated. Right. Uh, our, our, uh, our joke is that he thinks his name is Oops. So then whenever we're in the kitchen and say, oops, because we've dropped a piece of food, he is like there in half a second. 
right. he is massively you know, like whatever. Maybe he grew up with a lot of brothers and sisters or something, so he had to fight for food or before it disappeared. Uh, he was raised uh-huh. in a house with like ten dogs or whatever, and so he is just obsessed over food and like uh, the point where like he'll wake me up at like five thirty in the morning <laughs> to get his breakfast because he's just always thinking about food. And the reality right. is, is that, you know, he's in no danger of starving to death. Right. <laughs> it is literally not going to happen. But his right. body still remembers those triggers of, you know, hey, if I don't, you know, make sure I get food whenever I can, I can go hungry. Yeah. Because I grew up in this jungle of siblings where there was no one to make sure. I mean, he probably did have, but, you know, uh, ultimately, but there was that sense of uh, enough painful losses. And it reminds me, actually, I've been listening to this Enneagram talks by Richard Rohr, uh-huh. uh, the Catholic theologian, kind of a pop culture figure in some ways. And I, and I kind of forgot he was also involved with Enneagram. And so he's been talking about the type three, which reminds uh-huh. me of one of my children, which is the performer. And what they uh-huh. described it as is that somewhere along the way, the Enneagram people say, as you're born this way, is they decided that... Um, the way to feel good about themselves is by accomplishing things. Mm-hmm. And so they're literally starving for opportunities to demonstrate their own worth and value by accomplishing something, by performing. Uh-huh. And the, um, you know, it, it made me wonder, you know, uh, you know, look at any Enneagram stuff, but it, it'd be interesting, you know, if you just watch like a five or 10 minute video on YouTube about it, whether that resonates with what you feel. Like, I realize uh, that uh, these days I re- identify with the type one, the reformer. And uh-huh. The char- chief characteristic of the reformer is that they always assume that they know what the right way to do things are and everyone is doing it wrong. Like, uh-huh. it's arguing with the truth. But, but like, I'm right. I actually am doing it the right way. It's like, wait a second. This thing that I think is just an inevitable uh, result of the circumstances around me might actually be an artifact of my personality type. Mm-hmm. And, and the whole point of the Enneagram, unlike a lot of other strength finder things, is it comes from a sort of spiritual therapeutic perspective. Is like, this is how you identify the sins that keep you from seeing the face of God, because you have this fragmented view. Uh, the other interesting thing is that uh, I think a lot of talk about the Enneagram is it's actually an artifact of modernity. Is mm-hmm. that in traditional cultures you don't have all these different types? You just have the the nine, the peacemaker, which mm-hmm. is uh, the status quo, uh, getting along within the village, and mm-hmm. that all these other things are uh, uh, sort of the things that actually the things that modernity relies upon in order to function are mm-hmm. sort of these different neuroses, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, or at least civilization. Um, mm-hmm not even just modernity, um, is you have to have people who find their identity in, for lack of a better word, these idols. Mm-hmm. Because that's what keeps the trains running, that's what keeps the grain bars fed, that's what keeps soldiers in line, is these sort of um, um, internalized uh, neurotic obsessions. Mm-hmm. Because you know, civilization requires them to do that. And this is a fascinating picture of, you know, this is how the Gentiles lorded it over. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is not what Christ has for. I mean, those are things that just laid the groundwork for the true kingdom of God to be revealed, right? This place right. of total rest. 
and obedience Mm -hmm. without the need for insecurity, fear, and shame uh, to drive conformance and performance. Um, I, I would be interested if you've got if you've got a link uh, starter link to send me to the man you were talking about uh, discussing the Enneagram. I've had some incidental contact, but haven't gone deep enough in it to have found value personally yet. But um, yeah, but they will find something on the type three. Like the original ones are good, but they're like three hours, and so oh, okay. uh, I might be able to find a slide. Yeah, I'll send you a link to the full three hour one, or put it in the show notes. And then I'll uh-huh. see if I can find a sort of a short introduction to the type three. Uh, the other interesting okay. thing, though, that's funny is, is, as I've been thinking about this, is that one of the ways that we, so one of the ways that we kind of break free of these, these neuroses is the inner healing type of work, right? Like heart sync and mm-hmm. uh, the identity exchange. But another way that we do that, and these may be correlated in some way I don't deeply understand, is through uh, catharsis uh, through through painful circumstances. Like for me, really the uh, um, the critical point for me when I did my startup when I first left Apple in 2014, uh, getting close to seven years now. Seven years, yeah. So there's a sort of seven year. Uh, and ways, this year has many ways been a Sabbath year off of that. Um, uh-huh. Is that um, I had to face this thing where, uh, uh, like, we were like a few days away from launching, and we were missing a critical piece, like the the uh, the game that people would play to demonstrate the value of it. And I delegated this to a friend of mine, David Huffman, who was with us on the Great Reset. Yeah. And like, I had not heard back from him for like a day, for 24 hours, which we only have three days left. 24 hours is like, you know. It, and part of me really wanted to just claw that back and say, I need to make this work out the right way. Right. And that was the, the, and I said, you know, the reality is that even if I do everything right, this could still fail. Right. And, you know, it's more important that I trust him and honor him and stick by my values of empowerment and trust and this big long value statement I wrote uh, uh-huh. about relationship, then making sure the right thing happens. Uh-huh. And that was in some ways the hardest decision I had to make. And in some ways the easiest, because once you think about it clearly, it's obvious that like the reality is it's probably only gonna make a marginal impact if I actually take this over myself. And I might do a bad job and fail too, but it's like, the, the need for it to be my responsibility or the things to get under my control was the thing that I had to give up. And right. that uh, sort of cathartic, transformative cup of suffering or whatever, you know, facing this fear, facing this right. insecurity, um, and then because of all the prayers and relationships and everything that was going on and all the people involved in the project, it made it the... Um, obvious choice even though it wasn't the natural choice uh-huh. is because we've gotten caught up in that narrative and i think that there is a uh there is a way in which the cup of suffering purifies us mm-hmm. uh, that is complementary to sort of the therapeutic um uh you know inner healing type of approach 
And I think one of the things that is hardest as a parent is in fact saying, like, I see these things wrong in my children. Um, mm-hmm. And I would like to spare them from pain. But the reality yeah. is that, you know, that might actually be the worst thing I could do for them is that mm-hmm. having the, 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 like, it's easier to just be in denial that there's a problem, but to be aware there's yep. a problem, aware that there is something you could do which might help, but mm-hmm. then choosing not to is arguably the closest we can get to understanding what it feels like to be Father God of a broken world. Mm-hmm. I could fix everything, at least temporarily, but only at the price of stealing glory from my children and giving them the chance to grow up. Right. And, um, and so one understanding, you know, this is why God doesn't take away my pain and suffering is because he wants me to grow up. Uh-huh. Doing that. And then the other last thing i got to wrap this up on is that uh, the word I had uh, this morning in my devotion from Andrew Murray was unspeakable joy. And that, you know, arguably there's no, quote unquote, you know, deliberatively, cognitively right way to make these decisions. because It's an infinite set of variables. But there is a place of joy and peace to make these decisions out of. And if you can find that place of joy and peace where you've confronted your personal demons and uh, performance and say, okay, I am at least to the extent I know of them, I am not being controlled by them, but I'm still paying attention to them. Like we, you know, we men aspire to do with our wives, right? Is we don't want to just playlessly obey them, but we want to deeply understand what it is they're asking for. Mm-hmm. Um, and then say, okay, I am fully aware of this. And I have uh, come to the altar before God and say, okay, I see all these things. I hear all these things. They all have a measure of truth. But the deeper truth is that I am a child of God. I am just here to be his foxhound and chase the fox to the best of my ability and then let him decide what happens to it and be totally okay with that. And, you know, as long as uh, the fox is given to God, it really doesn't matter what happens to the fox. Mm -hmm. And, like, I'm good with that. Yeah, I don't need anything to happen. I just need to know that I have done my part to to treat a fox that God has called me to. I like the analogy. The part that to me that seems missing, of course, all analogies are missing something, is the intimacy that God wants to enjoy with me. Um, it may be not mm. parallel in the foxhound analogy. This has been, for me, the big thing God has been speaking to me about is that he didn't die for me just so I can do everything I can for him, but because he wants this intimate relationship with me. And yes, there are things to do like chasing the foxes, but um, those, those are secondary the to walk, walking with him in the cool of the garden. Yeah. Maybe uh, God spaniel would be a better uh, hunting analogy. The spaniels are known for their affectionate nature. Right. Yeah. And the relational connection. And certainly my spaniel is uh, to the point yeah. of codependency, but that's another story. Yeah. Um, all right. Um, Great to talk. Yeah. 
Yeah, good to talk. We're going to move forward. I will start promoting this and see who else God brings to meet with us on Saturday. Yeah, I was thinking maybe Janet would like to invite her friend Gary Sweeten, um, and we could uh, start to connect with him. Um, yeah, if you but, talk to Janet before I do, definitely. Yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah, oh, the Bless other thing I was was that on Thursday, I'd love to sit down with you and Janet and kind of go over the slides and see if there's some learnings from your variant of DBJ that we could work in. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, yep. All right, let's do that. All right, I'll send right. you a uh, calendar to pick a time on Thursday. Okay, great. We'll talk again. Thank Bless you, you man. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Bye. God bless you. Bye-bye. Thank you.